Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fireside Philosophy here on Call-In once again on a lovely Tuesday morning here in Australia. If you are elsewhere in the world, if it is a different day, a different time of day, uh, here I give you the greeting that is relevant to wherever you are. Good afternoon, good evening, and I'm doing this episode, this will be actually a repeat of the, the uh, content I covered in the previous episode on Colin here, but <laughs> fortunately for me, it didn't end up saving. I don't know what happened, but um, the Colin app did not uh, save the episode, and so, I mean, it's all right. It gives me an opportunity to revisit the ground, and, uh, you know, certainly we don't express ourselves perfectly when we are doing a live show, and so uh, gives me another opportunity to try uh, cover this ground again with a little more succinctness, a little more uh, sort of specific focus on the ideas that I want to focus on. And in particular, this will be a part two, this will be a bit of a companion to our previous discussion on nihilism, which is the notion that life may be fundamentally meaningless, life may be fundamentally bereft of purpose and ultimate justification. And of course, this is not all nihilism is. There are different aspects and subsets of the idea of ni- nihilistic ideology, you might say. But we're talking about existential nihilism, this sort of panging, dragooning feeling we, we typically all have as human beings, that maybe our lives are just meaningless. Maybe not even just our lives. Maybe the universe is meaningless. Maybe the cosmos is meaningless. And though we can date our cosmic birth date back 13 billion years and the uh, birth date of our planet uh, about 4 billion back, you know, we sort of think, well, what was it all for in the end? Because clearly there is no purpose or meaning to it. Now, we're going to continue our discussion about why this is fundamentally wrong, why this is fundamentally illogical. And I want to focus on, in, if, in, if you listen to the previous episode, we sort of touched on that topic from the vantage of a number of different aspects. So we looked at Thomas Nagel and his idea that we all feel this feeling of the absurd. And what is the absurd? Well, the absurd is the notion that we can't help but feel life is kind of ridiculous or absurd from a certain point of view, because as human beings, we have these capacities to step back and see our lives, like how we look an ant pushing up dirt up a hill. We can sort of see our daily lives in this very uh, routine, methodical, uh, sort of maybe a bit boring aspect of it. And that vantage point, that viewpoint, maybe makes us feel that life is meaningless or absurd. So there's that aspect of it that we discussed, and Nagel has some very interesting ideas about why we feel that feeling, regardless of no matter how you imagine the universe to be, uh, you're going to feel that way. So, you know, we talked about the idea as well. If you were handed a brochure at the moment you were born that said, you know, here's your instructions for (laughs) what you need to do from beginning to end, if you had some predefined purpose, if you had some predefined understanding of what the universe was ultimately geared and, and designed for, would that make your life any less absurd? Well, probably not, right? Because you'd still end up questioning, why is it that way? Why is it that I have to obey uh, you know, certain precepts and uh, follow the universe in a certain kind of way? Why must I do that? So that was kind of the focus of that first episode, is that no matter how the universe is structured, we can expect these doubts to be 
fundamentally pre present in all human beings. Because as Nagel argues, and as I tend to agree, that we, as human beings, it's fundamental. It's part of our psychology. It's part of our unique conscious experience of uh, this animal consciousness we have that is self-aware, that is aware of its mortality, that is aware of its death. And if you, you know, took a, a mouse and made it self-aware, made it aware of its own mortality, then its life would be absurd. It's a particular and peculiar factor of human psychology and being a human being. Now, I want to point out too at this point that I am not the expert here. I'm not, you know, I have a major in philosophy that's far from really what's required to be able to do some real expertise and authoritative discussion on the topic. But I am able to ask questions. I think anyone can ask questions. I think about these topics in particular, we're all entitled to ask questions. It's our human right, fundamentally, because we all have these questions. We all feel these questions, even if we don't construct them in the best way, we definitely feel them. You know, why do people believe in religion? Why do people uh, go to, you know, other places in the world and join monasteries and ashrams and, and religious temples? Well, we all fundamentally, on some level, to one or another degree, want to explain these questions to ourselves. And so I, th I just want to clarify that because, you know, you get a few comments that suggest that um, you're sort of preaching or you think you know everything. It's like, no, actually, I'm quite the, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not that person. I actually think fundamentally philosophy is about the discourse and the discussion and the critical questioning. And so that's why this app is great too on call. And so hopefully today we'll get some, um, some callers, some questioners. And if there isn't, that's fine too. If you're listening to this as just a podcast on the various podcast apps or YouTube, then I invite you to come along too and to uh, have your have some discourse and to get your opinion in, get your hot take on the uh, whether or not the universe is meaningful. No stakes at all, of course, with that question. Um, and also, we're going to focus, in, we're going to come at the topic of nihilism again today, but uh, through the lens of death and through the lens of whether or not there's an afterlife, because I received some comments which indicated that would be an interesting path to go down. Um, in particular, I received, you know, a comment or two that sort of pointed out that, um, you know, there is clearly no afterlife and that's why life is meaningless. And, you know, it's a very interesting um, starting off point because ultimately I'm not so sure about that, but I think I didn't, I didn't mention the afterlife or death really much at all in the previous episode. And so it's a good opportunity to focus on that and to explain my point of view and to explain why nihilism still is fundamentally illogical through that lens, because... Uh, and we have to start at the beginning to, to, in order to actually communicate why uh, why it is the case. So let me get a sip of uh, my delicious warm H2O here. Oh, I love a bit of warm water. I'm a little bit hungover too. So today I feel the pangs of nihilism probably more so than I usually do because just physically I feel a little bit drained, a little bit worn out. So apologies if I'm a little bit... Um, raspy or a little bit uh, low energy, as you might say, but thankfully I've got my delicious warm water to keep me company. Uh, just a hot tip for anyone out there, if you've got a scratchy throat or if you're just feeling like, um, you know, a bit dry in the whole uh, sinus area, warm water, just put some boiling water in a glass, let that shit cool for a little bit. Mm, this is exactly what you need, homie. So, as I said, we have to go back to the beginning in order for this to really be a coherent story. And by the beginning, I mean the beginning of philosophy. I'm talking about, of course, your boy Socrates. I'm talking about Socrates and 
what he represents ultimately. I mean, he he probably was a historical figure. We can we can amount um, a good amount of evidence. We can we can collate the data um, and say that he probably did exist. We can't be too we can't be fundamentally certain of that fact. But through the writings of Plato and Xenophon, fundamentally, his two main students to, that documented his uh, life and wrote about him um, after his death. Uh, he was a real person, and he and he did represent something to to the young people of Athens, and in particular, he. If you if you're unfamiliar, we could probably do a bigger episode on this in the future. But the uh, the story of Socrates is told primarily um, through Plato's uh, the Apology, and in the Apology, what happens is to this man is that he is something like seventy years old. He's at the end of his life. And he gets pulled up in front of the uh, Athenian courts, where there is 500 uh, of his fellow Athenian citizens judging him. And he is basically accused of uh, some pretty heinous things by some of the most powerful people in Athens. He is accused of corrupting the youth, which is an interesting charge to lay at someone. Uh, And he's also accused of um, impiety which is the idea of going against the will of the gods or defying the gods in some way. And of course, the gods here, we're talking about Zeus. We're, talk- we're not talking about, you know, the Abrahamic gods. We're talking about these very uh, animated and human gods in a way. Athena, um, Aphrodite, Heracles, right? We're talking about all these um, interesting names that we learned about in, in high school. Now, and also that it's interesting that we call them myths, right? We don't call them gods anymore. We call them myths and... Um, Maybe there's some, you know, interesting uh, distinctions there to be made. So what happens to Socrates is he says to the Athenians, you know, brothers, I'll, I'll, paraphrase, I'll paraphrase here for you. <laughs> he says, brothers, brothers, you know, I'm here asking questions. I'm just here asking questions of people who claim to have knowledge. And because of that, I'm not going to grovel. I'm not going to beg you guys for forgiveness. I've done nothing wrong. And because I have this moral code, I have this philosophy, and again, just to emphasize, philosophy comes from the Greek philo, meaning a friend or a lover of, and sophia, meaning wisdom. You're a lover of wisdom. You're a friend of wisdom. You care about wisdom, essentially. Um, you dedicate your life towards the pursuit of wisdom. And this is you know, highly recognizable by many other religious traditions, right? For example, um, this is a highly familiar idea to the Buddhists who say life is about seeking uh, enlightenment or seeking wisdom through the path of meditation or through various other practices. And so Socrates says to the Athenians, he says, I am not here to speak in my defense. I'm here to speak in yours. Because if you sentence me to death, you'll simply be making your own society worse. You'll simply be making your own society less wise, less capable of doing philosophy and to, and to direct our society towards the good. Now, why does he say this? Well, fundamentally, he's saying that he has done nothing wrong, and why should he be punished for simply asking questions? And he also says to them once, uh, this, this doesn't work. <laughs> you might imagine um, if someone did this in the courtroom uh, in the real world, you might think, hmm, I'm probably not going to, if you're on the jury, you're not going to go, well, I'm probably going to give this guy a pass. Actually, no, probably not. You're going to go, oh, this guy is uh, is a little bit uh, too confident and maybe we need to teach him a lesson. So as you can imagine, it, d- it didn't work. 
and uh, Socrates's uh, pro prosecutors managed to convince the jury to um, sentence him guilty. And, he, and the way it works in Athens is that uh, he can propose an alternative punishment. Socrates's uh, accusers want to uh, commit him to death, want to execute him as a result, as a punishment, because that would get all, get, they'll get rid of their problem, wouldn't it? This uh, annoying old man asking questions. It's also kind of bizarre, you know, the idea of like, he's an old man and you're going to, you're going to execute him like, hmm, okay. And then, so he has an opportunity to say, well, okay, let me pay a little fine. Let me do this little kind of like symbolic punishment to sit, to shut you guys up. But again, Socrates is not willing to live in a world where he cannot pursue wisdom, where he cannot ask philosophical, deep metaphysical questions about why we are doing what we are doing. It's fundamentally necessary. And this is, of course, where the, the moniker of my channel comes from. But he calls himself a gadfly. He is the gadfly on the city of Athens, buzzing around, perhaps frustrating people, but we need gadflies. We need dissenters. How else do you know when you're down the wrong path without someone to stop you and to uh, correct you, to actually say, hey, what needs to be said? Maybe it's a harsh truth, but I would always take a black truth over a white lie. And I think many people would agree with that. And so he says to the Athenians, actually, what, what do I deserve? What do I deserve as a result of my behavior? Hmm, I deserve a feast. I deserve to be rewarded. Uh, and he proposes the, um, he should be given basically what the Olympians get given for their victory, which is like a big feast in a hall. And, and he says, that's what I deserve. And so you can imagine what punishment the jury was sort of compelled to pick because of Socrates's alternative. They sentenced him to death. And that's where we're going to start. The idea of death. Okay, because this is a powerful, hmm, how should I say, this is a powerful source of nihilistic ideology. Because we die, and because there probably isn't an afterlife, and we can probably say to a reasonable certainty, you know, a lot of atheists will say, it is certain. Well, I'd like to know a little bit more about what their minds are made of, because certainly they, they are not omniscient, but they might think they are. But they're really probably isn't an afterlife. Let's just start with that assumption. Is there any reason to fear death, though, in that case? Well, Socrates says to the Athenians, to fear death, my friends, is only to think ourselves wise without really being wise, for it is to think that we know what we do not know. Very, very compelling quote. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying, again, I've got to give you a little bit more background here. So Socrates is a character in Plato's dialogues. Again, he probably did exist, but doesn't really matter if he did or not. He certainly uh, lives on through the character, uh, through the through the symbol of, of what Plato and Xenophon wrote about. And so Plato has this notion that Socratic philosophy fundamentally is not about, uh, you know, having ignorance be fundamentally evil. Ignorance is not fundamentally a bad thing. Ignorance only becomes a bad thing when we are unaware of it. That's when ignorance becomes an evil and, uh, and a very nihilistic force in a way. Because if we're ignorant of what we do not know, this is what's called Socratic irony, to be aware of what you do not know, then that actually becomes knowledge. So Socrates is saying there, for it is to think that we know what we do not know, 
to fear my death, my friends, is only to think ourselves wise without being wise. He's saying we don't know what comes with death. We have no idea. And so this idea that we need to shriek and panic and, and run away like terrified toddlers from the notion that we will inevitably die, that we are mortal beings. It's a very understandable response. And in particular, if there is no afterlife, maybe maybe that really does have a big impact on you because you were, that's, that was the only way that you could justify death. And without an afterlife, death really represents a cosmos that is unfeeling and is, you know, uh, full of misery and, and, you know, meaninglessness and suffering and pain. It's like we can acknowledge all of that and still say that death is fundamentally, we have, is not something to be feared unnecessarily. We just don't know what it is like. I mean, did you fear being born? Did you fear what happened, like, before you were born, that, that big stretch of time that you have no memory of, right? Why wouldn't death be a similar experience? Why, it's not as if you, with death, you get um, sentenced to sit in a dark room for all eternity. Well, no, it's something else. It's, it's about having a non-experience, and we don't really know what that is. We can't really comprehend that from the point of view of where we are now, which is alive and conscious. Now, again, just a note here. That's what is the heart of a lot of philosophy, at least from the tradition of Plato and ancient Athens. It's the idea that we do not disregard ignorance. We explore ignorance through discourse, through a Socratic method with other people and through conversation where we ignite knowledge and we allow knowledge to be shared in such a way. But we also acknowledge the limitations of our understanding. And so... Socrates actually goes on to develop this idea that maybe we do have a soul and maybe there is an afterlife because he can he brings out all these rational methods about why the soul is maybe different from the body and how the soul has different kind of aspects of um, temporal existence that goes beyond the body. We're not going to get into that. But what we do want to know about Socrates is that his method is to be aware of one's ignorance. That's fundamental in philosophy. And I say this because... In the conversation, I, I, you know, in the comments I was getting, in the conversations I was having after the first episode, I, I saw a lot of people saying, and, and one in particular, you know, that there really wasn't an afterlife and that death really is this terrifying thing and life really is miserable and we can prove that because X, Y, Z. And that really betrays a kind of false wisdom. Again, nihilism is not a logical conclusion in this way. It's an emotional projection, ultimately. You could decide that life is meaningless and point out all the ways in which your life is miserable. You know, this commenter I'm thinking of in particular, which I enjoyed the comment as well. You know, I don't want to say that, um, you know, I'm not trying to mock this person, but certainly I disagree. But I think they, they stated their point pretty compellingly. You know, they said something like, um, you know, the public school system just manipulates us and, um, you know, we have to work some terrible job and clearly this means life is actually miserable and we can prove that. It's like, well, okay, well, again, I, I think that says more about you than it does about, you know, the fundamental metaphysical structure of the universe, especially if you can presume that you actually have some understanding of that, you know, as if you were a god, right? Again, that's that's the idea here is that, you must be aware of the limitations of human rationality, fundamentally, because there are limitations. If you don't think there are limitations, I'd be, I'd love to hear your point of view, because I'm 
I'm very dispelled by that belief. I mean, if you'd got me five years ago in the past, maybe six years ago, when I was a bit more of a nihilist, I might have made the same argument. So I, I don't begrudge anyone for thinking that. But I would point out that what makes you so sure? What makes you so, you know, fundamentally certain that there is no afterlife, for instance? And what do we even mean by an afterlife, too? Like, do we mean we go to the clouds and dance around with all the people that are dead and you're all your dead pets? And it's like, do you think, do you really think that's what it could be? I mean, if, if anything, do you really think that's the idea? I mean, maybe that's the childish kind of fairy tale version, but, you know, we're mature philosophical adults, right? We can have a deeper discussion about these ideas that isn't just reactive and reflexive. So we're going to look at some other quotes from other philosophers throughout history who have commented on the subject. And again, I just want to point out that regardless of where you're coming from, if you're a, you know, extreme religious um, person, if you're very, you know, uh, already grounded in a religious tradition, or if you're completely uh, atheistic, we all have some more wisdom to learn in this regard, because this is frankly, these questions are fundamentally alive. They're not, if anything, they're more alive than they have been in a while, you know, we constantly talk about the rise in depression and anxiety, the lack of meaning people have in their lives. Well, don't you think it's a little bit because we have no idea what we're doing, we have no purpose, we have no shared conversation about our human project here and what what is the ultimate goal, you know? You might say that's because we've logically moved on from that discussion. I would say that could be true, or on the other hand, maybe we've forgotten a lot of the wisdom of the past. Because why would depression and anxiety be on uh, an all-time rise when you literally have everything you need to be happy? And more so, you have plumbing, you have electricity, you have so many basic fundamental things that if you go back a thousand years or two thousand years to the time of the Buddha and to the time of Socrates, you would be shocked to learn that they were just as happy, if not more happy, than you without any of those things. So it's worth pointing that out too, because I think a lot of young people will say quite frivolously that, and quite, you know, dismissively that life is suffering, life is misery. It's like, well, and then what do they do next? They go jump on their Xbox or they go to McDonald's. It's like, <laughs> you don't see the contradiction there. <laughs> and that's just worth, you know, it's worth having a good sense of humor about, if anything. And so um, I did that, with all that preamble said, let's dive into some discussion about death and the afterlife. And we'll end with a bit of a, a Buddhist approach too, or if you're an American, um, a Buddhist approach. We'll end with uh, one of that. So let's dive in. So I want to talk about the philosopher Seneca. And Seneca was a guy, he was uh, one of the um, highest statesmen uh, in the uh, empire of Rome under Nero, uh, the tyrannical um, and ultimately mad ruler. And he uh, lived a very interesting life at the time. And fundamentally, he ended up committing suicide as a result of, you know, being accused of being in a coup to take down Nero. Um, good, good speculation that he actually wasn't, but still committed suicide anyway, in a very grueling kind of fashion, slitting his wrists in the, in a hot bathtub. I mean, oh, not, not my way to go. But very interesting guy in that he wrote a lot about uh, what we call Stoic philosophy. And Stoic philosophy has a good connection to um, Socrates, but also to the Eastern traditions as well, because a lot of the Stoics traveled in the East. And in particular, we're thinking about people like Epictetus too. 
these people were literally slaves and found a way to not enjoy their lives, but to ground themselves in what they could control and what was beyond their control. Stoic philosophy is fundamentally about recognizing what is in your control and what is beyond your control. And the Stoics all share something in common, which that is that they recognize that fundamentally what is in your control is your own reaction to things. So it's your reaction, it's your decision. If you're a slave and you want to be miserable about that, well, it's I think that would be very understandable. I, I, you know, I would be miserable. But the Stoics would have a very harsh view of that. They would say, no, that's that's on you. That's on you to feel that. And so, you know, to be a little more reasonable about the philosophy, that's why it's kind of had a rebirth today as well. Because if we look at the world around us, that's what they would say about the, pe- the young people and, and, you know, people of all ages, I suppose. But young people in particular saying that life is miserable, life is suffering, life is, especially with the war, with the war now on in the Ukraine and... Um, the pandemic that just went by, you know, I've seen a lot of memes as well that suggest that like now we're seeing what it's like for those who lived in the fifties. And I just, or like, you know, during world war two and world war one. Um, and it, and you just have to kind of laugh because like, you know, obviously that's so ridiculous. Like, and it, it, people who upvote that people who post that stuff, we like that stuff. They just have no understanding of history, of course, because you have no idea what that was like. And we're nowhere close to being in that level of chaos and carnage yet. Yet, I will say. Of course, it could get to that level. But again, if you think that you, you've you lived a like, life of uh, profound suffering because there's been a pandemic on when you got to stay at home and, you know, play your video games and order Uber Eats, I mean, you are having a laugh. You're really just out to lunch. So... That's the idea of the Stoics too. Even when things do get miserable, which they might, they're clearly not yet, but in terms of our material conditions, when they when they inevitably get worse, and, and they might as a result of the, the current chaotic moment that we're in, the Stoics say that we can still find a way to be happy. We can still find a path, not just to happiness, but to eudaimonia. And what do they mean by eudaimonia? They mean fundamentally content with your purpose, with your direction, with your ability to function in the world. So it's it's more than just happiness. It's more it's more about spiritual and that's a very fuzzy word, I know, but like maybe we might want to say like cosmic contentment, your co- contentment about your place in the cosmos, contentment about your purpose in the cosmos, whatever you decide it is fundamentally. And you can decide that it's meaningless, but you can also decide that it's a miracle also as well. It's it's fundamentally your choice. But the, the, the problem with nihilistic ideology, the fundamental fallacy, is to think that that's a logical deduction, because it's not. You can point out that science has proven that evolution is true, science has proven that the Earth is just an unremarkable planet amongst other, un, you know, hundreds of billions of other planets, and um, our Milky Way galaxy is just as, you know, common as all these other galaxies that was found. Yeah, that's fine. All of that's fine. It doesn't prove that life is meaningless. It doesn't prove that the universe is meaningless. It might prove fundamentally there's no, you know, daddy creator. But that has nothing to do with regards to meaning, with regards to purpose. Again, this is a very, like, layer one conversation. It's very superficial um, and a very reactive conversation to have. And if you want to go a little bit deeper into the actual substance of these topics and, and to actually explore fundamentally what does death represent? Can we view it differently? Can we view these things fundamentally from a different point of view? That requires a 
a more deeper, mature discussion that doesn't just state these things as if they were logical certainties, because they're just not. And, you know, maybe it takes a little bit of growing up to realize that or a little bit of intellectual maturing to realize that. And I understand it because a lot of people are, I was not raised religious, but a lot of people are. And and so it's sort of like, uh, it's a way to sort of, you know, I guess, react to it in the other extreme of the spectrum. But what you, what you need to maybe guard against if you feel that you do that is that you don't want to, de- this, you know, obviously you don't want to define yourself as being religious, but there's also the concept of being counter-dependent. You don't want to be counter-dependent on religion either. You don't want to define yourself by being counter-dependent on the idea that God isn't real. Well, first of all, you don't know that. There's no way of knowing that. You can have the discussion, but also, you know, that identity is also fundamentally not yours. It's counter-dependent. It's relying on this other ideology. And so it's not it's not any more logical than being a religious extremist, fundamentally. It's the same kind of reaction. And if you want to be philosophical, you have to ask questions. You have to be nuanced and you have to find a reasonable position that unites the two points of views. Okay, so Seneca will do something like that. And here's the first quote I want to read from Seneca. And this is from his essay on the shortness of life. It's a brilliant essay. He spends most of the essay basically arguing fundamentally this contention, quote, The life we are given isn't short, but we make it so. We are not ill-provided, but we are wasteful of life, end quote. So that quote, fundamentally, he's, and he spends the whole essay unpacking this through a, a number of different examples, that it's not that, like, you know, we say these things like life is short or life is meaningless, and it's not that at all. It's, it, Seneca will spend that essay arguing the notion that actually it's that we squander our life, is that we, we spend much of our time either being neurotic or consuming vices. There's another part of the essay where he says, you know, those vices of yours will consume any number of lifetimes. I mean, how much time have we all wasted eating food that we shouldn't be eating, drinking when we shouldn't have been drinking, uh, as I can attest to as being a bit hungover? You know, there there are just many aspects of uh, our temporary moment-to-moment existence where we're pulled around by impulse and, you know, the lizard brain, a need for immediate gratification as opposed to delayed gratification. And so, in a way, maybe the Buddhists would say, we're living unconsciously in those moments. Seneca is also pointing this out. He's saying, you know, maybe fundamentally you might want to say life is meaningless because we are these apish, uh, primordial beings that are just driven around by these... um, you know, very fundamental animalistic impulses, well, that's fine. It doesn't mean that that there's no meaning to that. And we can also transcend that too. It's not as if that's, we're doomed to, to live that way. And so he also says, quote, on the topic of, you know, maybe feeling this, um, this idea that life is meaningless. And again, if this is interesting, go back and look at the first episode if you haven't already, because I go into more detail about that feeling being a very reasonable feeling. I'm, I'm not really giving too much, um, uh, too much of a significant defense of that feeling of nihilism in this episode, because I, I did that in the first one. So if you feel like I'm being a bit dismissive of the feeling, trust me, I felt the feeling. I know everyone has felt the feeling, and I think it's a very compelling feeling. But Seneca says, quote, to a luxurious man, a simple life is a penalty. To a lazy man, work is punishment. The dandy pities the diligent man. To the slothful, studies are torture. 
What element of evil is there in torture, and in the other things which we call hardships? It seems to me there is this evil, that the mind sags, and bends, and collapses. But none of these things can happen to the sage. He can stand erect under any load. End quote. So, fundamentally he's saying that, you know, if we want to think that life is meaningless, then our life will seem a burden, you know? We will feel like life is a burden. It's just a natural consequence of having that idea and and thinking that it's a certainty, thinking that it's a logical truth. And so that's why I think it's so dangerous to be consumed by nihilistic ideology uh, and to be saying those types of things, because ultimately it's not true. It's like there is a there's place to stand where you acknowledge all of the realities of science, all of the realities of you know, what we can logically and empirically prove to be true through um, investigation, through using instruments and proving things with a scientific method. We can acknowledge all of that. We can acknowledge the fact that not everyone has it equally. You know, there are people that are, that are born and that they die, you know, very quickly just due to dysentery or just diarrhea, just not having the basic medicines to actually live a fulfilling life, you know. And these you know, examples are good to have in mind. It makes you, it should make you more, much more grateful and much more appreciative of your situation. If you are born into a, a Western nation such as myself, like Australia, obviously Western, not geographically speaking, but, you know, obviously in terms of how the society is built, we're very, we, we are a very Western society um, in Australia. So that's all I'm pointing out here is that like, if you do think life is meaningless, well, that's fine, but you will, your life will just be a burden. Whereas if you think it's a miracle, and you might think, well, that's hard to logically justify. Maybe not so much. Maybe it's easier than you think to, to get there. But even so, you don't have to think it's a miracle. But let's say you did think it was a miracle. Well, then it's going to seem like like a piece of music that you get to play. Like a, like a, like a, uh, a muse that's inviting you to, to be stimulated, to be engaged, to, to try to build cool things and to and make people happy and to reduce suffering where you can and to take your responsibilities, not with the, you know, Sisyphean boulder on your back, <laughs> but like more so like a, again, like how a musician plays a guitar. He doesn't do it for some end in, or some goal in mind. You do it because it's intrinsically what you are meant to do. It's intrinsically pleasurable to harmonize, to dance, why do we do these things if life is meaningless? I would put that out to the nihilists who are still listening at this point. But thank you for hanging on if you still think I am completely out to lunch and you are uh, listening along regardless. Let's go to our next quote. So this is from Marcus Aurelius. He's another Stoic philosopher. And this is from his uh, catalogue of uh, very brief but very interesting um thoughts on various topics and he called it the meditations and what's interesting about this text is that he actually didn't write this for the public let me just get a little sip here a little h2o to keep me going so he didn't actually write this for anyone he wrote it just for himself and i, I believe after he died it just found its way into popular um reading and and as a result we have a copy of it today and he says um, oh, just to give you a bit of background he was an emperor of rome um, and he's kind of uh, the opposite of Nero, in a way, uh, very well regarded. And, you know, Plato wrote about the idea of a philosopher king, the idea that, because um, he didn't think democracy was a great idea, 
specifically because democracy in Athens um, killed what he thought was the highest symbol of integrity and rationality, which was Socrates. So he was a little put off by democracy as a result, understandably. And, you know, he goes to um, Marcus Aurelius, and doesn't go to him, but he wrote about this philosopher king, the idea that you take someone from the from the cradle and you make them wise and you give them a path that shows them how to be a philosopher. And that's that that would be a the ideal system of government, a dictatorship, but a dictatorship that was wise, that wasn't driven by ego and vices and the need to conquer and to use power unnecessarily for one's own desires. You know, obviously the idea of the king with all these concubines and all the in hoarding all the food, it's like that would that would be the opposite of a philosopher king. So Marcus Aurelius, uh, I'm sure he had his faults, but he is widely regarded as the closest thing that we can sort of find to a philosopher king, that he was trying to be wise and thoughtful in his exercising of his uh, power, his his uh, position as the emperor of Rome. And ultimately, uh, in his meditations, he wrote a lot about the struggle he had with that uh, power. And, you know, he, basically he had this passage that, that's really interesting where he goes, you know, um, to paraphrase, like he can't trust anyone because every, he knows that every person he talks to is wants something from him, um, thinks that, you know, he can be, he can get them something, you know? And so you can think about what this does to you. If you're a really, if you're Brad Pitt, you know, if you're one of the most famous people on earth, do you, can you, do you really think people are going to treat you normally? Do you think that's going to do something to your psychology and to how you, um, approach people you know it's going to fundamentally change that and he says on the uh, the issue if it is an issue of death quote cold or warm tired or well rested despised or honored dying or busy with other assignments because dying too is one of our assignments in life there as well to do what needs doing and he also says on the topic of impermanence quote some things are rushing into existence, others out of it. Some of what exists is already gone. Change and flux constantly remake the world, just as the incessant progression of time remakes eternity. We find ourselves in a river. Which of the things around us should we value when none of them can offer a firm foothold? Like an attachment to a sparrow, we glimpse it and it's gone. And life itself like the decoction of blood, like the drawing in of air. We expel power of breathing we drew in at birth, just yesterday or the day before, breathing it out like the air we exhale at each moment. End quote. So he's using a number of different metaphors there to describe, first of all, the first quote, emphasizing the reality of death. It's one of our assignments. You know, you could think that death is fundamentally an evil thing you know why should we die you know I'm, I'm terrified of dying it's an evil thing it's it represents malice and malevolence in the universe and we ought not to die well okay i mean that's one reaction to it and it's an understandable one too again as biological primates we're going to feel that way about the show coming to an end but from another point of view dying is actually maybe the most important thing we do or at least one of the most important things we do, what meaning does your life have without death? Everything we do 
is the last thing we do. And once we are aware of death, that's sort of a blessing. I mean, I hope you, I hope the nihilists out there can see what I'm at least trying to get at, that there's another point of view to see this from. Surely the fact that you die gives everything in your life right now profoundly more meaning. Because if every if the, the, next, the next meal you have, if that's the last time you have that meal, well, it's not to say that it will be, you know, you're not going to walk out and get hit by a bus. I, I hope not. God bless you if that's um, a danger. I, I hope that doesn't happen to you. But and then, and, you know, I'm not superstitious, so I don't, I don't get, you know, I don't get jinxed out by that sort of stuff, but I know people are, so <laughs> I'm not wishing that on anyone. But, you know, if you think about that, what the hug, I mean, you may maybe take your parents, you know, maybe they're getting older. And the last time you said, I loved you to your mother or your dad, and um, the last time you hugged them, or maybe your grandparents, if you're a bit younger too, is a better example. There are just so many things that we do that we never know if it's the last time we do it. And the reality of death gives that substantial meaning, right? If we really want to tap into that, it's right there. You could see death as some fundamental ghoul, grim reaper, just waiting there at the, you know, however many years you pretend that you think you have, 70, 80, if you're lucky. And he's just waiting there with these scythe, just waiting to cut you up and take you down to uh, the, the room of darkness where you'll sit there for all eternity, right? But that's not what death is. Death is is this inevitability that's just, that is going to maybe spontaneously happen. If you're lucky, you're going to have a warning of it where you can say goodbye, you can have these discussions on a deeper level with people that you actually want to have it with. And it's just something else to consider. So the other ideas of death is impermanence. Frankly, we have impermanence in every aspect of our life, and death is just another aspect of impermanence. And there are various ways to try to get around this. You know, you could try to etch yourselves into the history books. You can have children. That's another way of trying to escape impermanence. But ultimately, these are not fundamentally, you know, functional methods in the long run. Because if we just zoom out the clock long enough, you know, though we know Socrates and Jesus, we know these names, they successfully etched themselves into the history books. Well, what if we go another 10,000 years in the future, another 20,000 years in the future? You know, that's another idea of nihilism that they like to point out. It's all meaningless because it's all just a sandcastle. Well, okay, maybe it is all a sandcastle, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. It just means that we built the sandcastle for the sake of building it and maybe it blows away with, with time. It doesn't mean that it's meaningless. That's your decision to say that it's meaningless. And to emphasize that again, it is not a logical deduction or a logical argument to say that, to point out all these different facts about why one thinks the universe is a meaningless, miserable place, and to say that then that, that proves that the cosmos or the universe lacks a purpose, lacks a fundamental meaning. That's your decision. That's your emotional projection. So... Here's another quote from Alan Watts, where it's going to get more into the topic of impermanence. So actually, before I do that, I will just emphasize too, these metaphors are lovely, you know, like the drawing in of air. We find ourselves in a river. Which of the things around us should we value when none of them can offer a firm foothold? Beautiful rhetorical question, because what is what was he asking himself there? Again, he wrote this to himself. You know, there is nothing in a river. And what is the purpose of a river? Idea, you know, if we thought about if the river was conscious... The river's just dying and being reborn in every moment. The water just flows. Maybe we could see our lives like this, that we just flow. We don't need, fundamentally, 
death to be removed from the universe. Like, and we might talk about that in just a little bit using Alan Watts here as a jumping off point. So we're going uh, a bit fast forwarding in the future now to about the 1960s, the 1970s. So um, we're leaving the, uh, the emperors and the Romans in the past here, the Greeks, um, though they are a great source of wisdom. Alan Watts was a, uh, a British philosopher who gave a lot of talks in America to a lot of um, suffering Americans at the time. You know, I think uh, in the post-World War II era, it was a very confusing moment because basically everyone in the world saw the carnage and chaos that was going to be, uh, you know, maybe never-ending. You know, if you were in that moment, on one level, you might think this might never end, especially... Um, in the midst of the wars themselves. Now it did end and we got that. And, you know, thankfully we have had this big period of um, peace, you know, for the last 70 years or so, but that is the exception. It's not the rule. And so in the post-World War II era, you had people kind of hung over from that um, carnage. And so people may be very deeply questioning the purpose of life when we just blow ourselves up. And maybe there is no purpose because why would we treat each other this way? And so Watts was uh, very keen to dispel this illusion, to talk, to give these really interesting talks that challenged people's assumptions about death and about impermanence and about purpose fundamentally. So he says to the uh, crowd he's speaking to in a lecture, quote, And so at that moment of death, we withdraw and say, no, 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 not that, not yet. But the whole problem is that we don't realize that the only thing to do when that moment comes is to go over that waterfall. Just as you go on from one day to the next, just as you go to sleep at night, when the moment comes, we should be absolutely willing to die. End quote. So again, you know, um, I can anticipate some counter arguments. You know, maybe the idea is here that, you know, Watts is a bit too morbid, you know, a bit too death obsessed. Uh, people people will probably level that criticism. But at the same time, you've got to recognize that why is this intrinsic fear of death something that is, you know, so prevalent? Ultimately, isn't it something to get over? Isn't it something to mature out of? To realize again that death is fundamentally an inevitability because it represents the impermanence of this whole cosmic rhythm, this routine that we have uh, found ourselves in with planets exploding and um, and stars stars sorry exploding and planets forming um, themselves into existence popping in and out of uh, existence you know there is something to be said about this really fundamentally baffling and befuddling universe and Watts is pointing that out and so you know you might look at people who are trying to quote unquote end death. You might look at them with a bit of a skeptical eye as a result of what we're discussing today, because why would you want to, I mean, it's a noble thing in one regard to extend life, but what are we talking about here? I mean, are we trying to become immortal? Is that the idea? And if we were immortal, like how long would you want to live? I mean, maybe that's the idea is like we can decide how long we want to live, but I mean, that's some godly powers right there, isn't it? And what if we had those godly powers, but we lacked the wisdom to understand why we die in the first place? We are kind of in that moment already, aren't we? When the president of the United States is like 80 years old, you know, clearly he lacks the ability to realize that new ideas are necessary. 
I'm not saying that he needs to die, but certainly you would think that the guy should have realized maybe about 10 years ago, and I'd say this a lot about leadership in various countries, so I'm not trying to pick on America here, you know, um, our prime minister is about 50 in his 50s, I think, so he's a little bit younger, but, you know, even then it's kind of like, you, you just think that surely these people realize that you have to have symbolic a death of ideas and you need new people to come in and to like the fact that people still talk about like, capitalism and communism it's like what a throwback to the 60s like that's got like you know we're, we're so far past that binary discussion and yet people will still fall into these like these false binaries as if they make any sense in the world today because frankly all the people still in those positions of power that's when they came up that's what that was the dominant discussion so death is not just, you know, non-existence, it's impermanence. It represents this fundamental aspect of life. And we shouldn't be terrified of it. We should we should welcome the waterfall and recognize that it's part of, again, maybe as Marcus Aurelius said, it's one of our assignments. Um, so in that regard, let me just uh, get another sip here. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I've said all I want to say on that. Um, in that regard, you know, we should just be a little more Socratic in our approach to the reality of death. And by Socratic, I mean be aware of our ignorance, be aware of the fact that we have some significant limitations when it comes to these very metaphysical questions. And again, maybe I've done nothing to convince uh, any of the nihilists out there. Maybe you still think, well, no, it's still meaningless. And uh, what do you know? You know, um, you're a 25 year old. That was one comment I got to that, I, that really tickled me. You know, you're 25. What do you know? Um, you shouldn't be preaching to the public. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a funny one because it's like, I'm not preaching to the public, mate. I'm, this is just a show and you tune into it, um, whether you want to or not. <laughs> I thought, you know, I didn't put a gun to your head and told you to click on the video. Uh, but I thought that was quite funny too, because, you know, when do we get to have a questions that we can ask and, you know, is it 35, 45, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know when uh, we all pass the age threshold for being allowed to share opinions. I thought we could just share opinions and then just have arguments. And if as long as we can mount our arguments with reasons and evidence, then what's the problem? So, you know, maybe I've done nothing to convince you nihilists out there. Maybe you're still all saying that um, we die. It's a, it's an evil thing that we die. There's so much suffering in the world. My life is suffering. Your life is suffering. Life is meaningless. Okay. I still get that that's a very compelling feeling, and I don't ignore the reality of the feeling. And so we might just uh, keep going here. Um, doesn't seem like anyone has any questions today, and that's fine. We'll just keep trucking along. I want to end with a discussion on Buddhism. And fundamentally, what is the Buddhist approach to this? And maybe this does nothing to convince you nihilists out there because you think of Buddhism as just another goofy, um, uh, you know, illogical religion. I would just say that Buddhism is a little different from, let's say, the Abrahamic faiths, you know, Christianity, Catholicism, um, um, you know, Islam um, and um, Judaism and these very, very recent traditions, right, that we are, that are very common in the Western world. Buddhism is very different because it actually does encourage a skeptical uh, empirical method. Empirical meaning you should try these ideas out in your own life. Though Buddhism does have some precepts and does have some, you might say, some rules, yeah, like all religions do, it doesn't pressure you in a way to sort of believe and to adopt them all immediately. It sort of pats you on the back a little bit and says, 
maybe try this out. And if you like it, well, then you can follow our rules and we'll, we'll give you the garb and we can join the, the monastery and all that. But I would just say fundamentally, at least the Buddhism that I've learned about, it's, it's a little more, you know, it's a little more logical. It's a little more inviting of philosophical inquiry. And certainly meditation is also a very empirical thing because we are exploring our minds in a, uh, a more logical, careful, rigorous fashion. And so that's also worth pointing out. So uh, we might just go into that, I think. Let's pull that up here. So this is from a book called Why Buddhism is True. It's a very kind of sensational title, but it's a great book. It's, it's more or less just an introduction to Buddhist ideas and Buddhist ideology. And on the topic of that feeling, right, that feeling that we all have, that life is fundamentally meaningless, the Buddhists have a pretty good answer to this. And it's called The Four Noble Truths. And what are the Four Noble Truths? The Four Noble Truths are an explanation as to why we suffer and why we feel this feeling of impermanence. Why do we, you know, reflexively want to uh, get away from that feeling? And why do we, uh, before we get wisdom, you might say, why do we need uh, fundamentally to um, get away from unpleasant things and, and find solace and vices and, and immediate gratification, right? Buddhists have a pretty good answer to this. So we'll just get into this in a moment. Just hold on, I'll find a page here. Oh, excuse me, I've got a very runny nose. Okay, so let's dive in. So this is a quote from uh, Miri Al-Bahari. Robert Wright is uh, paraphrasing the Australian philosopher here, Miri Al-Bahari, who is a... Uh, a philosopher who's worked on Buddhist um, ideology and studied it. So here we go. And this is also um, a reference to the to the sermon at Deer Park, which is where uh, the Buddhist explains his idea of the Four Noble Truths. He says, quote, Here the Buddha lays out the Four Noble Truths, which explain the cause of dukkha, or suffering, unsatisfactoriness, and the cure. And dukkha, um, you know, I looked up some pronunciation online. Maybe in uh, American English, it's dukkha. I don't know. I think dukkha makes more sense to my uh, my kind of um, phrasing, I guess, as an Australian. But maybe it's dukkha. I don't know. That could be right. So he says, quote, The basic cause of dukkha is tanha, a word usually translated as thirst or craving, and sometimes as desire. To put a finer point on it, the problem is the unquenchability of tanha. The fact that attaining our desires always leaves us unsatisfied, thirsting for more of the same, or thirsting for something new. Al-Bahari says that tanha is inextricably tied to the sensation of self, and that overcoming tanha is therefore tied to the experience of not-self. She's not just talking about the interior version of the not-self experience. She's not just saying that if you let go of a particular desire, then you have disowned it, so that part of yourself disappears. She's saying that tanha is deeply involved in your sense of self being bounded. Tanha sustains and strengthens the sense of the boundedness that, during the exterior not-self experience, weakens. 
After all, she says, if you thirst for something, hot chocolate say, then you are painfully aware of the gap between yourself and that chocolate. And that means you have a conception of the bounds of yourself. Indeed, as I sit here thinking about that particular thirst being quenched, I do imagine some of those bounds. I imagine the surface of my hand making contact with the mug of chocolate, and the surface of my tongue making contact with the chocolate itself. To see the full breadth of the argument al-Bahari is making, you have to understand that like many scholars, she considers Tanha to include not just the desire for things you find pleasant, sex, chocolate, a new car, a newer car, it also includes the desire to be free of things you find unpleasant. That's kind of the part I want to really emphasize, so I'll read that sentence again. It also includes the desire to be free of things you find unpleasant. In other words, Tanha fuels not just the attraction to alluring things, but also the aversion to off-putting things. End quote. And just to give you uh, a, a more condensed version of the Four Noble Truths here, it is the following. Life is dukkha, number one, meaning life is fundamentally unsatisfying or suffering. So again, the Buddhists acknowledge the nihilist's point of view straight away. This is what I mean by saying it's the superficial layer of the discussion to say life is meaningless, life is suffering. Yes, okay, but then what do we do about that? And fundamentally, is that a logical statement or is that something else? So the Buddhists acknowledge that immediately and sort of say, okay, now what next? <laughs> and they say what comes next after life is unsatisfying. The second noble truth is tana is the cause of dukkha. Or in other words, craving or desiring that the world be different is the cause of that suffering. So what is the nihilist fundamentally saying when they say that life is meaningless, life is suffering? Well, they're saying, I can imagine the world being differently and that would be more meaningful. That would be more purposeful. But like we explored in the first episode, ladies and gentlemen, and all other genders, that is fundamentally not true. It's fundamentally not the case. Because even as Nagel points out in his essay on the absurd, again, this is not me, this is Nagel, um, a very renowned philosopher on this subject, he points out that this is simply not the case. Uh, if we can imagine the world being, if we're the center of the universe and there are no other planets, well, life still wouldn't be more meaningful. We'd still have certain questions about that. And also if our lives were, you know, if we were giants and uh, if you could change the scale as much as you want, if we lived forever, would that mean life is meaningful? No, we'd still have doubts. We'd still have questions about what our purpose was if we were immortal beings. So that's the fundamental misconception, is to imagine that if the universe was just different in just this kind of way, well, then all of a sudden we would no longer crave, we would no longer desire. No, we'd still, we'd still experience Tana, we'd still experience this need for permanence when fundamentally we experience things impermanently. And we, and, then, and you might want to put that through the lens of, you know, Darwinian evolution. Why do we fundamentally have this experience of impermanence well if if you were if you got your meal and you were hung and you were never hungry again well that's not very good for surviving is it so you know there's a way of understanding this too through the lens of science and evolution which which kind of very much grounds us in the notion that we are animals that we we have this impermanence because we need to fundamentally desire things maybe that's just a part of our existence that's just my kind of musing there but anyway let's go to the third truth the end of tanha leads to the end of dukkha 
The end of craving will lead to the end of this unsatisfying suffering that we feel. This feeling that the universe is just not right. If we end our craving, we end that feeling. If we end our desire for it to be fundamentally different and simply live in this world, simply ground ourselves in the miracle that is this world, the Buddhists will say that will be the end of that feeling. Again, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I'm just delivering you what they think. And the fourth noble truth is more of a um, invitation to explore this more. So the fourth truth is that this truth can be further developed with the eightfold path. And the eightfold path um, goes into various kind of religious precepts that's much more uh, recognizable as a religion in that regard because we've got things like, you know, right speech, right intention, right action, a guideline of how to follow a path of conscious living that we may or may not agree with, but fundamentally we recognize is perhaps better than being reactive to this feeling of dukkha, being driven by this feeling that life is miserable or life is meaningless on the cosmological level. Again, we've spent the first part of this episode explaining why that's fundamentally beyond the limits of the rational mind. So we can't actually know that to a certainty. We could speculate all day. We could come up with probabilities. And if I, you know, if you're putting a gun to my head, if you're telling me to put money on it, I'm probably going to put money on the fact that there is no afterlife. That maybe life is fundamentally a bit chaotic in that regard. I still don't think it means it's meaningless. I still don't think that makes it fundamentally bereft of meaning. That's a that's a, another logical step. And that's frankly, it's a it's a leap of faith. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of atheists out there are very allergic to the idea of faith. So the fact that I'm accusing them of being a bit faithful in their commitment to nihilism, if you are an atheist and you do think that life is meaningless, well, maybe think about, you know, is there any faith behind that belief that you are not logically proving to a certainty? It's worth thinking about. And so I'll end with this. I'll end with the quick discussion here about what the Buddhists call a hungry ghost. And this is the analogy I think that, honestly, I think captures a lot of what nihilism is. It's a hungry ghost. What is a hungry ghost? Well, we could think about in our in our minds. What does the image of a hungry ghost bring up? Well, it's a, you know, obviously a ghost, you know, again, if you're an atheist, if you're uh, not someone that's uh, predisposed to any mystical or magical ideas, you're like, well, ghosts aren't real. Well, okay, that's fine. <laughs> We're not saying these these things actually exist. Maybe the Buddhists would want to say, like the, the really committed ones would say that they do exist, but that's fine for the purposes of this discussion. They don't exist. But just the metaphor of a hungry ghost, the, the literary idea, okay, the symbol, let's just stay focused on that. What do you, what comes to mind? What do you imagine? Well, I imagine something like a you know, an ethereal, transparent being that is hungry and craving. But if you're, if you don't have a body, you can't satisfy, you can't satiate those cravings. So I get this idea of someone who is just desperate for purpose, for meaning, for something to fill their void, and yet they are fundamentally inside ghostly and lacking any sort of ability to satiate those cravings. And I think it's a good analogy for nihilism. Here's what the Buddhists say about the hungry ghost. Um, and they say, uh, let's see here. Is this the one I want? Uh, not quite. Let's see. Let's go a little bit further back. The hungry ghost. So that's the idea of the hungry ghost. It's this 
this being that's uh, that you know, and it's nothing terrible. It's just the idea that we we kind of all have this notion that we we uh, dragoon ourselves around and we uh, are desperate for filling up this this void. I mean, it's a very understandable thing as well from the perspective of uh, a younger person who's sort of desiring this meaning, desiring fundamentally um, this this place in the universe that is a little more uh, purposeful, uh, a little more uh, aware, you might say. And let's see here. I've lost my page. It's all right. We'll have a little scroll. Do-do-do, hungry ghost. Anyway, that'll be, uh, after I read you this part portion here, that'll be, I think, the end of our discussion today. It doesn't look like we have any callers, but that's okay. As I said, I sort of had to redo this episode anyway, but it was good to sort of uh, revisit the territory. Um, it allowed me to clarify my thoughts as well. So um, if you are looking to join in on the next call-in discussion, please download the app and follow Fireside Philosophy. Um, or you could follow also Gadfly uh, on the app, that's me, and uh, you'll get notified when the next show is scheduled in. If you enjoy what we are talking about here, if you enjoy the discourse, again, philosophy is fundamentally about engaging in discourse, and so we should all always be checking ourselves and making sure that we are thinking logically, thinking critically, and, uh, you know, we need other people to do that. We need people to to prod and challenge us in order to that for that to be a successful exercise. So, uh, if you can't make it to the next call-in, please leave a comment, please let me know what you think, and uh, we could absolutely engage in a discourse. I would just encourage anyone to, if they are going to leave a comment, you know, I know YouTube comments are not <laughs> really the, uh, I shouldn't be expecting too much from YouTube comments, but I would encourage you, like, you know, there's no need to be snarky, there's no need to be ironic, there's no need to be uh, you know, unreasonably, um, ad hominem, just tell me what you think and, and we can engage in some discourse. We don't need to, you know, I think the internet unfortunately has devolved quite a bit into this snarky, sarcastic bullshit where people think that's actually discourse. And, um, yeah, it's weird. It's quite weird actually to be on Twitter and Facebook these days and to see how people just talk past each other. They don't even talk to each other. And that's why I think this call-in app is, is quite tremendous because it does, you know, when you when you can hear someone's voice, when you can hear, like, genuinely their emotional tone and what they think, it's a little more, um, it's a little more connection to, to someone as opposed to sort of reading someone's text and, and feeling as if, you know, you actually understand uh, what they think and, and sort of using them as a way to sort of just dunk on someone to get clout for yourself. I mean, you know, that's, that stuff's a little bit silly in my opinion, and it's kind of a waste of time. So if you do leave a comment, just, you know, be sincere and, and, and let me know what you think. And uh, I think I've, I think I've found it here. So here we go. Um, actually, I don't think I can find it. That's all right. I should have, uh, I should have made sure I underlined this, but that's okay. Um, this is a big text here I've got on Buddhist scriptures, and I, I can't seem to find the, the page that I, that I wanted to look at. No worries. Anyway, I think I gave a good enough description there of the hungry ghost, um, fundamentally. It's this idea that um, this, this, this being with protruded stomach, and the Buddhists have a very good description of, like, you know, what they think it is. So um, that's why I was going to reference it. But look it up online if you want. I think, I think it's a great metaphor, not just for nihilism, but for, you know, many aspects of craving you know i mean how many of us know addicts um how many of us have been addicts or felt that addictive tendencies in us um in our own lives whether it's food alcohol drugs 
Um, whether it's neurotic thoughts, depressive thoughts, right? That can be a source of addiction. That is ultimately all about the idea of a hungry ghost because there's the notion that if you just indulge it a little bit more, it'll go away. It'll finally be satiated and it won't be. It just won't be. You have to fundamentally change your approach to that question, to those issues, to that problem that you seem to be um, suffering as a result of. And the Buddhists recommend fundamentally to live more consciously. That would be a solid antidote. And Socrates, it's worth noting here to bring it back. There's a link here. You know, one of the most famous quotes that the man is known for is that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I've had to think about that quote a lot recently because I remember reading that for the first time. It really struck me. And I feel like I've lived a relatively unexamined life for the last few years. You know, it's maybe we just go through different phases. But I remember reading that quote when I was a much younger person and thinking, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to examine things. I want to live that life. But, you know, a few years go by. Maybe you're not as good of a friend as you should have been. Maybe you're not as good of a uh, a dad or a son or a mother or a daughter. Maybe you're a little bit more prone to vices. I've put on weight, you know, definitely during the pandemic, you know, been a bit more indulgent. That's not very examined, is it? So the Buddhists and, and Socrates, there's a lot of harmony here between conscious living and living an examined life. What does it mean to live an examined life? To be aware of one's ignorance. What does it mean to be aware of one's ignorance? To not be fooled by the notion that we can know everything, that we have a good, rational understanding of what this cosmos is and our place in it. These are questions, again, to link it back to where we started our discussion, that are fundamentally alive right now. And we all need to be thinking much deeper and much more robustly about these questions. And I think engaging in sincere dialogue about it, because that's the only way we're going to get to any sort of conclusion and any sort of, not even conclusion, but coherence, right? You know, frankly, even if we are around religious extremists and we don't want to indulge them, we still have to live with them. We still have to live with them, just like atheists too. Maybe you are a religious person and you think atheists are the problem. You think those people are the ones that will doom us all. Well, you still have to live with them. <laughs> There's no getting away from that. So we have to live with each other. And the meaning of life can be one that is far more significant if we find a way to love each other and find a path through. Uh, so we'll end it there. Thank you for tuning in to Call In uh, Fireside Philosophy, and we hope that you join in on the next one. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Gadfly, sign up. Get, get, get.